You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast. This is episode six, and I'm Ravi Abbott. I'm Dan Wood. And we're a weekly gaming retro technology podcast. We thought we'd swap the intro up a little bit this week to keep it fresh. Yeah, keep it fresh. <laughs> and we've got a fresh new guest. Who is he, Dan? Uh, this week, Mike Daly. Oh, Mike Daly. GTA and Lemmings. Lemmings and yeah, GTA. We've got the inside story about his time at uh, DMA Design, Psygnosis, and also a few little bits that you might not have heard about such famous games as Lemmings and their Grand Theft Auto. Uh, certainly some stuff I'd never heard before. Yeah, I, I'd say they're probably the most famous games as well, you know. <laughs> so yeah, he's going to be on in around 35, 40 minutes from now. Uh, before we get into this week's show, we also want to say a massive thank you to the guys over at Retro Gamer magazine. Now, obviously we had Paul Drury from Retro Gamer on the show the other week. And then uh, you got a nice little surprise when you logged onto their website on Saturday, didn't you? Yeah, I was just reading an article about this kind of Sonic game that uh, might be coming out and then I just scrolled down and saw... Our logo on the website, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we've got a nice lead feature on their homepage, so... Uh... Yeah, check out their blog and they'll... They're, they're rating us highly, so hopefully uh, we'll get a few more listeners for that. <laughs> Thanks, Retro Gamer. And then just to remind you, you can get the show every single Friday we come out. You can get it off iTunes, SoundCloud, MixCloud... YouTube, anywhere we're not yet. Tuned we're, in. I think we're going to try in. and get on there soon, though, because uh, they've started doing podcast listings. But uh, Six weeks in, I've got to say, guys, thank you so much for all your support and your kind comments so far. And uh, we're loving it. We're going to keep the show going, spread the word. Yeah, and get some <laughs> more top-quality guests for you as well. Absolutely. Now, uh, let's get into this week's stories, because uh, this is quite an interesting one for people who live in the UK. Uh, yes, Hoosen are back. Now, this is Hoosen Consultancy, who you might remember from old Commodore 64 games, but mm-hmm. also they were on the Amiga. They were, I think it was 21st century entertainment. Yeah, I think it was the guys behind Houston. They they had a big Spectrum and Commodore 64 scene, did a few early Amiga games, and then the guys from there left and formed um, 21st century or behind, you know, Pinball Dreams, Fantasies, Illusions. But then in 2013, Andrew Houston actually wrote a book about okay. the company and his experiences on Kickstarter, and now the company are back together again. So, oh, wow. All this time later. Yeah, and uh, apparently they've gone for this UK Games Fund, which uh, seems to be a fund from the government where you can get grants of up to £50,000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, starting a small company off the ground or reviving one, it's uh, really useful. And they I- seem to have won that, so... So, uh, yeah, I'm just reading about this project then. So the UK government are doing this at the moment, and they're offering, they basically want to get more people coding games, I guess, and support indie projects. Yeah, well, they say, you know, the uh, gaming economy is worth £84 billion in the UK, which is massive amount of money, you know. And uh, there are actually ways for people to apply to this. It's running right through till uh, 2019. Yep, ukgamesfund.com. So if you're a developer and you're based in the UK and you're looking to further your projects, you can uh, apply for this. Get an extra 50 grand. Yeah. Not bad. Might start coding. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is a story that we mentioned on our first episode, and it's something that's been going on ever since the Dreamcast went away in 2001. Uh, Fans who are desperate for Sega to get back into the hardware market, kind of. Yeah, well, passionate fans, very passionate fans. I think they're trying to force it through, but... um, it seems like Sega have kind of taken a bit of notice. Mm. Well, there has been this petition where fans of the Dreamcast have gathered 27,000 signatures, well, virtual signatures, um, for this group. Now, they're called Project Dream. I think it's not going to be Sega who will make the hardware. It's going to be uh, this independent company who want kind of Sega's blessing and the rights to use the logo and the name and the assets. and that Yeah, kind they're of kind thing. of licensing. And uh, I guess, you know, Sega licensing has been used for 
everything, so I can't see why they'd turn this down. Well, now, yeah, apparently they've been in touch with Sega regarding their plans, and they haven't had a negative response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that says. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, not necessarily a positive response, but apparently... Uh, yeah, they're taking notice. It said here, it went from me ringing them up to pester them for not replying to our emails uh, to their receptionist. So basically, he was handing their receptionist <laughs> at Sega's HQ. And then eventually, they're like, right, give us a lowdown on what's going on. They've come in, done some pitches and all that. And uh, now, apparently, they've uh, spoke to a few Sega names, including some people that are quite high up in the company. Oh, and so, it, it's been a mildly inviting response, they say. <laughs> so, uh, not the most positive language in this article yeah. really here on their Twinfinite, but, but... They're not getting the cold shoulder, so that's good. I'm, I'm not sure what this project will be, though. You think every console these days, it uses kind of commodity hardware. All I can see this is going to be is basically like a new year, Mark II. Yeah, well, I reckon Sega would... Um probably have realised that they're selling all these little consoles and these ones we've been on about in Argos mm. and stuff. So they'll probably think that there's some money in there. Yeah. They might get into there, but I, I don't think they'll be able to produce a really powerful machine. Or It would just probably be a, a Dreamcast upgraded a yep. bit, do you think? I, well, I even think, you know, like I said before, it's, I'm looking at here the project. Um, I'm trying to find some details about what kind of architecture and that it would run on, but the, it's kind of quite... Um, Dreamy. <laughs> yeah, there's not really a lot about it. It's kind of like, oh, we're going to make this console, and they've done... Uh, they spent a lot of time doing the nice renders of what the machine had looked like, the graphics and everything, but, you know... There's not much about what's actually inside there. Yeah, looking at tech specs and all that and what it's going to run on and everything, but I, I just imagine, you know, anything that you make these days, it's got to either be ARM or x86, hasn't it? Well, well, I think also um, the games have continued as well onto different architecture. Yeah. So they've they've got lots of pictures of Shenmue here. If they wanted the mm -hmm. new Shenmue, they would probably have to be on x86. Or, yeah, but you then know. you're competing with the PS4 and the Xbox One, which... Yeah, which how's it you've be got no chance. You know, you go for a total different generation, aren't you? There'll be some kids that won't even know Sega these days. God... Yeah, well, I mean, you would look now, and obviously they're releasing a lot of the Sega titles come out on the Wii U, which obviously has not been a successful platform. The recent Sonic games have all been Wii U exclusives. Yeah. But they have, you know, Sega have got quite a big history of franchises that they've kind of just dropped and you never hear from anymore. I mean, mm. maybe it m might be quite cool to have a new, uh, you know, a new Afterburner game or... Uh, Commander Keen or... <laughs> Space Harrier and, you yeah. know, updates of those. But I mean, the only people this is really going to appeal to, I think, is the hardcore... Sega fanboys, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But then it's just... Because Sega did even put out... You know, they put some games on Android, and on the Ouya console, they put out um, Sonic the Hedgehog Episode 4. They, they do there. mobile games as well, because yeah. Sonic CD is really good on Android, and I've got that on quite a few of my phones. So I'm wondering, is, is this going to be an Android-based thing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I... <laughs> I think they'll probably go for a simple solution and maybe mm -hmm. emulate it inside. It's not going to be a customised board with new architecture on there or new <laughs> developments. You know? Yeah, so, you know, don't know where pissing anyone's chips, as the old expression says, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I really can't see this being any more than an Ouya with Sega branding, pretty yeah. much. But, but, uh, but then, you know, we, we said last week that we couldn't see Sega paying attention. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, now they're mildly... Wrong ones. Yeah. <laughs> so we hope that it will be a brand new Dreamcast. <laughs> now, this is quite interesting. Every 3D Realms game available for less than a fiver. Yes. Now, this is uh, crazy because you've got amazing titles in there. Well, you have got Commander Keen, which I just accidentally said was Sega, sorry. Duke Nukem 3D, you know, um, kind of all the original... FPSs mm -hmm. and uh, they've also got remakes as well so they've got like uh, remade tunes on it it's all DA, uh, DRM free wow okay 
Yeah, which is a very big bonus. And uh, this isn't actually through Steam. It's through uh, one of these sites. And there's quite a few of these sites which sell CD keys cheaper than Steam. Okay. And it is legal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so if you ever want to buy any of these packs, search on these sites like g2a.com and you can get cheaper keys for Steam. And this digital key is only £4.62. £4.62 for the 3D Realms anthology, and you get pretty much all the big games in there. Yeah, I always recommend that. Never buy on Steam. Search for these CD keys first, and then... (laughs) (laughs) Ravi always knows how to find a bargain. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of finding bargains, um, we've said on the show in the past that, you know, a good place to go instead of eBay and all that is to retro gaming markets and shows, and you find another one. Yeah, another one, and this isn't actually quite far, not far from us, Dan. It's in Doncaster, mm-hmm. Donny, and it's 170 tables of games, toys, and merchandise. But it's retro video game market specifically. So. Okay, and this is coming up on the 5th of March, so uh, that's a Saturday, um, yeah. first Saturday, March next month. And it says here, fed up of missing all the classics at boot sales, annoyed at the bidding wars and online auction sites, prefer to inspect your item before you buy. And that is really the, the main advantage of these, that you can actually pick it up and look at the quality and that. And the ones we've been to, I mean, I've only been to about maybe three or four. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you always do find better prices. Well, it's that decision as well, because I, I was there, you know, um, with you at a retro show, mm-hmm. and there was an Atari Lynx. Now, they look amazing, but I was I was going to buy it, and I picked it up, and I just oh, is this screen working? Is this working? I could ask him in person. And he's like, no, it's buggered. But if I bought that on eBay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it would have just arrived and I wouldn't have known. So, you know, it it actually saves you money, I think. Although although you say that, yeah. Often when you're walking around, you're like, oh, I'll have that. Oh, I'll have that. Oh, I'll have that. <laughs> yeah, it's all in plain sight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before you know it, you spend 200 quid in like 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah definitely. So, uh, yeah, but this one looks massive though, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, the Doncaster Dome, it yeah. sounds. <laughs> I haven't got much much experience with Doncaster. I used to get a train and stop at Doncaster train station. Yeah, I think it's about an hour away from us. Yeah, the train station's not the nicest, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, there's quite a nice few... Doncaster Gills. <laughs> not not at a retro gaming show. <laughs> no, 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 they, they, w- they won't be there, yeah. Yeah, if you want to pull, that's the last place to go, Ravi. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've been to lots of shows and often you find a lot of gills standing at the side. Looking miserable. Or bored. Yeah. Well, I saw the men are in the middle around a small table. They're texting on the phone, like, <laughs> yeah. sighing. Yeah. yeah. I know How long are you going to be? <laughs> now, here's some... Uh, if you don't want to buy original games, though, and you prefer to download them, if that's more your flavour, um, there is a new way to do it for the NES. Yeah, yeah, we've been looking at all of these kind of adapters, and this is a really nice one. It's a little disk system replacement. So I think this was when you had the disk system for the NES. You could actually get a floppy one. I, I remember think. there was one for the Super Nintendo, wasn't there? Yeah, there might have been one for the original one as well. Um, by the looks of it, it's uh, if you didn't want to pay for an EverDrive, which mm. is you know the traditional way of... Uh, it it, it com- comes in a big cartridge, you put your SD card on the top, put it in the consoles cartridge port and they are quite pricey this thing here they're going to sell for 35 dollars yeah and it, it, it looks the size of less than a credit card it's tiny isn't it it's with, absolutely tiny it's a usb port with a little circuit board and a button on and then a plug on the front yeah it's not the most pretty thing <laughs> you yeah, it's, know it's for, a bare board yeah yeah for 35 you could probably build a nice little case for that or something you know now i'm trying to figure out exactly where this plugs in because we're looking at this um this article here to me it doesn't look it looks too small to be a cartridge because you've got kind of these four... Well, it says it completely replaces the disk system, which sits 
must have been an expansion the port. Nintendo yeah. Famicom. So interesting, though, the fact that you know for thirty five dollars you can download a load of games, buy them on a USB stick, and uh, yeah, that's that. that's crazy cheap compared to the EverDrives. That mm. is like impressive. Now, someone who I think uh, might be. We're talking about the future of gaming here, a company that have just uh, hired a 16-year-old pupil uh, that we might know, Team 17. Yeah, and Team 17 have a habit of this. So. I remember Worms back in the day. Wasn't Didn't that come out of a... Was that like a competition, Worms? Well, Worms was a, an Amiga format competition. Was it? Okay. And it was called Total Wormage was the initial game. They gave it away in the CD, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah and, this, and this guy kind of... He was flogging them around and uh, no one in the Amiga scene was interested at all mm-hmm. which is really bad because it was a really good game but um, there was a lot of kind of tank games where you'd fire across landscapes and stuff so he was kind of sending it to the magazines no responses um, and then he ended up going to Team 17 at a trade show mm-hmm. and just literally showing them and there and then they were like right you know, we we will take this on, help you with development. It developed, and then it became their biggest brand. Yeah, you know, on everything, isn't it? On Worms, everything. Yeah. It's still yeah. coming out now. The you know, there's one on um, Xbox One that released just before Christmas. So. Yeah, and it was very in the style of Lemmings as well. So it kind of f- fit exactly into the Amiga scene. It was uh, with Worms. It was based on. Do you remember a game called Scorch Tanks? Yes, Scorch Tanks. It was basically a rip off of that, but it yeah. was done a lot better. And it was amazing how late Worms came on. Actually. 95, 96. 95, it? Yeah. and yeah. it was still incredibly popular. Team 17 have done it again, though. So this is a 16-year-old lad who's um, come up with this, uh, they're calling it a viral indie game. Now, I have seen screenshots of this on Reddit. Well, way to the Woods, it's called. Yeah, it yeah. looks quite nice. I mean, the, the picture you're looking at here, it's, it's quite an artistic-looking game, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's a lot of kind of lens flares and shadows and... Uh, yeah, it looks very beautiful, though. And it could be the first game where you actually uh, play as a doe and a fawn. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I can imagine they'll probably do what they did with Worms here, mm-hmm. complete it, and then Way Into the Woods will be a Team 17 title. Mm-hmm. Then they may get him working on other projects or kind yeah. of, you know, new, innovative stuff. It's good that, like, you know, bedroom programmers are still being hired by software Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, stuff, it's, it? it's fresh blood and they're sticking mm. to the same model. You know, this could be a massive success. You, n- you never know what he's going to produce. Now, tell me about this uh, Commodore 64 MMO, then. Yeah, this is crazy. This is something that I uh, I came across and I was just like, oh, this sounds exactly like what Dan would like, <laughs> you know. And um, you'll probably know quite a lot more about this than me but um it's using commodore's q link service which was quantum link yeah yeah in 1986 yeah that was it was a forerunner to aol q link became aol okay so what's the difference between telnet where they'd have muds Mm -hmm. multi-user dungeons and say q link yeah telnet is just a protocol isn't it so q link though is a specific service it was like, you know, AOL or Virgin. Okay, so it would have, like, email or yeah, like, I mean, it, everything it, involved. It was, like, it. over here we had, like, Prestel and stuff like that. So it was literally, yeah. you know, just a, an ISP, if you like, so, so, an ISP. So this would be a game on the ISP yeah. rather than mm-hmm. just directly connecting to this. Yeah, you dial thing. this and then you play the game on their kind yeah. of servers. Um, okay. But, yeah, I'm looking at this here. So this game, it was only a beta, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was online between, uh, what did you say, 84 to 86? Yeah, uh, and it was a very small cut-down version of uh, the actual game. It had some involvement with um, LucasArts. How did yeah. they come into the story then? Um, I'm not quite sure, actually. <laughs> uh, but it just seems like there were... It was called Habitat, this game Yeah, was. the game's and, Habitat. Uh, yeah, it's from Lucasfilm Games. And uh, I guess that they would be working on the art, because it looks very... Uh, 
well, well drawn, actually. Yeah, I mean, it is a graphical game. You, you think a lot of these early kind of um, online games, a lot of them were text-based, weren't they? Yeah, like, yeah, this. this this looks like a cartoon. Mine's a bit of Ledger Suit Larry looking at the graphics. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but a, a bit kind of... Uh, Actually nicer done. Yeah, uh, for the C64 online. Yeah, uh, But now the same about this game, it, was, it, it went offline in 1988. A year later, Fujitsu bought it, and Amsterdam, I didn't even know they actually released games. I didn't feel like that sort of company. Um, but it sat dormant for years and years. And then uh, the guys that were behind it, who programmed it, you know, 20 years on, are thinking, oh, what would have happened to this game that we made? And they've got in touch with a lawyer at Fujitsu, which you think would be the worst thing to do. You know, most companies are really protective about their IPs. Yeah. They don't release anything, but apparently they were like, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, you can have the source code. There you go. Wow. So they're giving it back. And now you can actually, um, they've got it running on a Commodore 64 emulator. So what they needed to do is rework, they found the original source code again, take all the Q-Link specific stuff out and make it kind of just, you know, accessible via um, either emulation, but also they reckon if you've got a C64 with like one of the, NIC plus, you know, Ethernet mm. cartridges, you can play it on that as well. Yeah, because they said it originally ran on this Stratus machine. <laughs> um, was that I, I, I've never it? heard of it. Okay. Uh, the service ran uh, on Stratus computers, large machines, mm-hmm. uh, primary in banks for hospitals. Right. <laughs> and uh, via its VOS operating system. So, <laughs> so you just imagine a hospital, one of the life support machines is lagging. Yeah. Too many people are playing heavy tat on the, yeah, on the yeah. server. Yeah, <laughs> Trying to block a door or something. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the article that we're reading here, it's on their pacemagazine.com. It's pretty long, isn't it? It's about yeah. six pages long, so, you know, you're trying to fish out all the details for yeah, it. Yeah, to and try everything. and get our head around it. But <laughs> yeah. uh, it looks great, though. I just saw C64 MMO. And I was just like, oh, 30 years later, you know, you might have the chance to play this again. Apparently, it's not quite online yet, but it is coming soon. So, well, uh, stick a link to it in the show notes if you have uh, if you want to get your Commodore 64 yeah. online. Oh, it'd be amazing if they had an old server that you could actually hook up. Maybe we could do a video about that. You've got room in your new house, haven't you? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, another remake of Doom. What's this about then? Uh, another remake of Doom, yes. Uh, I, I've heard that they're going to hopefully burst life into the MMO scene with this uh, new remake of Doom. But mm. haven't there been remakes of Doom before? Well, or... this... Um, you remember there was Wolfenstein, The New Order came out on PS4. Mm. That was like a, must have been nearly a launch title for the PS4, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Xbox One and the PC. That was about late 2013, early 2014. Mm. I remember in there, you actually got an invite to the, the beta of Doom. But wasn't there this Doom one recently that was 3D? There was Doom. Around the space station where it was all dark. Was that as Doom well? 3, was it? Oh, it might maybe have been Doom was, 3, yeah. I think. But this, they have. It's basically going to be what they did to Wolfenstein, kind of a reboot of the franchise. Mm. Um, but I did in in my game box on the PS4. I got an invite to it. So you went onto the uh, the PSN store, yeah. Put this code in, and it flashed a message up going, "Oh, you're now part of the beta program." I've not had anything else for like three years. <laughs> That's it. Now apparently it's coming out in May. So yeah, or maybe maybe you get it next week. Yeah, you know what I mean. But it looks pretty. I mean, they're releasing this as a um, it's a full triple A title game by the way. Okay, so this is not like say, Duke Nukem 3D, where they just used the 24-bit polymost uh, rendering on it and made it. It was exactly the same engine, exactly the same gameplay, but with really nice textures and higher res. Well, they're calling this Doom the Collector's Edition, aren't they? But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, it's by uh, 
Bethesda, is that what you yeah, say? It's yeah. the guys behind Fallout 4 and all that. You know, they're a massive studio, aren't they? So, yeah, this is going to be, I mean, looking at the prices here, the, uh, they're going to release it in a standard and collector's editions as well. Uh, collector's edition's going to be £100. I don't know how I feel about these collector's editions because... I never bother with them. It's really weird. I go to all these shops and you get a metal case and all of this and then you don't play the game after a few months and it's like... It's annoying, if anything, because I got... Um, there's a game on the uh, Wii U I got yeah. off my mum for Christmas and it was... Um, Project X, Made in the Blackwater. I might have talked about it on the show before. Good game, but she, she got me the limited edition version. Mm. So it comes in that this big box. Inside, you've got a tinfoil box and an original Wii U case. You can't fit it on your <laughs> shelf. <laughs> like three yeah. games worth on my shelf. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, you want to put it all inside. Every time you want to play the game, you've got to pull all this box to bits. Well, stuff. with like GTA Five and stuff, I remember mm. a lot of people pre-ordered that. Basically, the collector's edition was the only one available. So they had to pay some ridiculous... A higher price because all the other ones had sold out. It yeah, was, uh, probably intentionally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. Paying double for them. But, oh, um... games companies probably love doing <laughs> collector's editions. But did you play the Wolfenstein games? Oh, the New Order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very good. Very, game. very good. Yeah. So if uh, there's anything like that, I'm looking forward to playing it. And I liked how you could play. Uh, there was a section where you went back to the old Wolfenstein. Yeah, yeah. you had a dream, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> dream sequence. That, <laughs> that was, was great. Yeah. So uh, yeah, well, it's by the same team, so I assume it's going to be up there in terms of quality. Now, this is a headline I never thought I'd be saying on our show. Old people playing games to stop them falling over. Yes, that's the headline. And it's not a, a wee balance board, <laughs> old school thing. This is a, a thing that's going on at Manchester University. They're actually creating games for senior citizens to help them balance. And it looks like they're using Connect or the Wii. Right, okay, yeah, motion control then, okay. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think this is kind of good. It's an, it's another use of gaming, and it's like, you know, the Wii and this motion control stuff. I don't think it's been utilised enough in fitness. You'd, you'd get Wii Fit, mm-hmm. and you'd get a few people, oh, I'm going to lose some weight, get my Wii Fit board, and then it gathers dust, yep. you know. Hands up, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. But this is really good, you know, especially helping get old people motivated and exercise, you know. Well, if they do do a version for the Wii, I mean, let's face it, hasn't everyone, everyone's grandma's got a Wii in the cupboard, haven't they? Yeah, exactly, that's it. It's a whole uh, new area of gaming. Yeah. Uh, you know, OAPs. I don't think it's ever, ever been engaged in computer games, really. I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, kind of N- Nintendo struggled a bit with their, you know, the Wii U and everything. It's because the main, I'd say the main demographic for the Wii was, it was it was old people and kids, really, wasn't it? Yeah. But I think it's because people bought those who, they're not gamers, but they kind of saw it as, you know, my, my girlfriend's grandparents have got one and they, you know, they've still got a CRT TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not the main audience that will buy video games consoles, but they, they class it as a bowling game. But I think that there are a lot of these around, and the platforms are so cheap now as well. And there's a screenshot here where they're showing it on the... Um, this looks like a 360 Connect. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, they're not expensive platforms. It's not like your grandpa's going to go out and buy himself a, a 400-quid Xbox One with Connect. You can get a 20-quid Wii maybe and do this at home, so... Yeah. I mean, it looks like a lab study at the moment, but... Like, you know, it, 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 I think they've said that they've released um, 15 games for it already. Okay. So 15 balance-based games. Quite interesting. Yeah. I don't want to play Doom anymore. Or, that, <laughs> no, eh? or Doom with an old guy. <laughs> That'll be good. Now, uh, Iran's a £140 million gaming industry. Yeah, so you think of Iran and you wouldn't really think of gaming, would you, as, mm. as part of the main thing. But here it says it's got an absolutely massive gaming industry. And it's all very console-based as well. So the number one gaming console is the 360 in Iran. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, the Xbox One's trailing at the back and the Wii doesn't seem to be popular. But it's a lot of first-person shooters. It's It seems to be really emerging. But an interesting thing they're saying about this article is uh, uh, that, you know, online gaming's thriving and all of these things, but also piracy is. So yeah. they're having fake games alongside Class A games. Triple A, you mean? Triple A, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. A lot of them are very addictive, though. Yeah. That, yeah. So basically you'll go into a game shop and you'll see like a, a, a real version of a game and a, a fake clone next to it then. Yeah, that's, that's what they're saying. And, okay. you know... Um, Many my... stores nonchalantly showcase copies of an original side-by-side side on their racks. Yeah, when I went to India, um, it was when Hitman was coming out and mm. Windows XP. And... I went went into official shops and they had CDRs. Yeah, you know, and everywhere there was guys just going around with stuff. So I can imagine this happens in a lot of countries where the industry is not so strong. It yeah, is, uh... well, it's even you go to China and that. I, I remember a mate of mine worked out in China, like probably back in about two thousand three, four. And uh, he was saying you'd walk around and, uh, you know, they'd have like stores, market stores, just selling pirate copies of Windows and Office. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, open, it's, no, it's yeah. totally out in yeah. the open. It's it's really crazy. But even to the point that um, my friend used to go to Russia quite a lot and she'd go in, you know, Virgin Mega Store or mm-hmm. one of the big shops and 90% of the games would be copied mm-hmm. in an actual, you know, official shop. It was very strange. What is interesting about this as well, as you said there, you know, the 360 is uh, the most dominant platform. Mm. Uh, the fact that the 360 is still number one over there. Obviously, you know, the bit behind the curve compared to the West, but they also yeah. mentioned in this article as well that broadband over there is very slow, so people actually, they say most gamers struggle to get a stable connection to get loads yeah. of lag. Yeah, so it's probably um, playing at home on your 360 on lots of single-player ones. Yeah, and, well, it's... Uh, uh, it's very interesting, though, uh, seeing that there's a, a gaming coming from the Middle East. With I, I don't think we've had any info about gaming from the Middle East for a long time. But these pockets of like systems, it, we, we did mention like a few weeks back. That is it still the make the the Sega Master System is still a massive console in Brazil? Yeah, and yeah, make games that was for it. One, yeah, it's like <laughs> the more you look out of just like you know the UK and American kind of. Yeah, audience, and you see what happens around the world. It's quite interesting. You get some surprises, I think. Yeah, so you know, if if you were still making a three sixty game, that could probably sell really well in Iran, you know, or get pirated. <laughs> <laughs> probably the latter. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, this is not very often you see this a video game that gets ten out of ten ratings. Yes, this is uh, unprecedented, but it's an amazing game. XCOM, I don't know if you've played them, Dan. I haven't. I'm, yeah. fami- I'm familiar with it. I've, I've not actually been uh, into the franchise myself, though. So do you remember the original one on the Amiga? That, it was quite slow, but it was mm. a very good game as well. And uh, they've redone them, but they've redone them really well. And to be honest, I was I was very doubtful of how it would come out. And then suddenly I've got all these kids going, oh, have you played XCOM? And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's going on? It must be successful. And two's come out and it's just got fantastic reviews. They're saying this is how uh, a sequel should be done. And I don't know if you recognize, uh, we used to have a TV show called How To. Yes. Yeah. Fred, uh, what's his face? Dinage? I think that's it. <laughs> and he's been doing the um, advertising for it. And it was a very funny kids TV show. How? 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 Yeah, how? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it said it's um, play, it's PC only at the moment. Yeah. With no pr- plans to bring it to consoles. They haven't even bothered with controller support at launch. But I think when a game kind of gets this amount of buzz around it. Well, it's uh, Firaxis Games as well, the guys who did. Um, civilization mm-hmm. and you know all the kind of recent really high-end pc releases yeah. so i think the pc gamers are really 
took this on, you know. Well, it goes back to the other thing we we're talking about then about, you know, obviously Doom's a franchise that's been put on absolutely everything. But when you get games like this, uh, if you did play the original back on the Amiga back then, it's always a bit dangerous doing reboots to franchises that, you know, are that old. I think it gets to the stage where a lot of it is nostalgia, kind of steeped in it. And you are kind of playing with people's memories a bit, aren't you? That's it. And I think, you know, you'll have a few people that would be like, oh, I remember XCOM, but mm-hmm. it will be a new game to a lot of people. Yeah. So it has to be that good independently. Mm-hmm. And uh, here they're saying in the Metro, a superb sequel that improves every aspect of the ex- already excellent originals. And uh, it offers one of the most absorbing, unpredictable strategy experiences ever seen. And this isn't just the Metro saying this. There's so many game reviewers that are just mm-hmm. absolutely doing amazing reviews of it at the moment. It's a hard thing to get right. I think often a lot of the times, you know, you're kind of trading on past glories, aren't you? Re- mm. Getting an old franchise that's that old and kind of reimagining it for a new generation. A lot of the time I think, would it be better just to put it out as a new franchise? But then I think if you do it right like this... We're waiting to see Shadow mm-hmm. of the Beast. Yeah, That is one that has been delayed for a long time and talked about. When and... did we first hear it? That was like two years ago, was it? It was first mentioned? Yeah, yeah. And we've got a friend, uh, Echo, that's involved in that as well. Yeah. So. Well, DJ Echo, he used to do the music on uh, Grapevine, didn't he? The disc magazine for the yeah, Amiga. Yeah, Jesus on Ease, that yeah, was the Jesus one. Yeah, Jesus on Ease so. demos. And, uh, but he works for PlayStation now, doesn't he? Yeah, Sony. So they've got um, kind of involvement of the old Amiga guys in there. And this is very anticipated, but I don't know how it's going to go down. I'm mm-hmm. completely clueless on uh, Shadow of the Beast. I think I need to play it and <laughs> see. Well, we're going to uh, see Echo, hopefully, at the, one of these shows in a couple of months. Yeah, so, we'll, uh, we'll have a chat about that. And, and I know he listens to the show, mate. We're, we expect to see a bit of work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, harking back to the Amiga, this is quite an interesting story and one that, you know, I had the pleasure of uh, breaking online this week. Yeah, I've, I've seen you all over the shop, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Commodore UK's former joint managing directors, David Pleasance and Colin Proudfoot, are working together again. Yeah, and... Um... It's on a new operating system, actually. Well, you remember fans of the Amiga and Commodore, uh, Colin and David, they used to be in like Amiga format. David would do a column in there, wouldn't they, every month? Yeah, these were the guys that were going to do the buyout. So um, they were going to save the Amiga. Uh, Amiga UK was actually profitable at the Mm -hmm. time, whilst all the other Commodore ones were dying. And uh, they put in a really good proposal, but um, sneaked out by ESCOM at the last minute. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, shady dealings. Yeah, shady dealings. And they basically got chucked out. So, you know, the guys were going to be the future of Amiga, mm-hmm. but uh, sadly that didn't happen. But now there's another future. Yeah, t- 21 years later, they're working together again for the first time now. Uh, I've done a video kind of covering this as well. It's a new platform that's called FriendUp. And uh, the lead dev, Hogner, um, he used to be like a, an Amiga hacker back in his day. Yeah. He had a great A4000 setup. And then he went to work on AROS you know, the Amiga replacement operating system yeah. project. And uh, this kind of came out of that. Well, so that's that's kind of, they were replacing it from the ground up. So, yeah. you know, he's going to know all about the structure of Amiga, the kind of mm-hmm. hardware, how how all the systems work behind it. So but good, good guy for it, you know. Well, and the thing about this as well, I've, I, I'm, I'm playing around with the beta quite a lot. At the moment, you access it through a web UI. Um, uh, yeah, I signed up the other day, actually, and uh, I've had a little go on the beta. Yeah, well, yeah. it's it's very Amiga-like, isn't it? Oh, it's very fast. Yeah. Just it's for running so a, responsive yeah. for running in a browser. I didn't get a single piece of lag. Oh, well, that, that's kind of, I think, you know, their strong point as well. I mean, if you even like, you can kind of skin it to look how you want because it's all HTML5. Mm. But even, you know, the default look has got the Amiga kind of closed gadgets and the backwards and forwards icons. Well, it's and... kind of nice as well because you can make new folders and stuff and then actually have that stuff saved on there. Yeah. And then every time you log in, mm-hmm. is the desktop how you had it on whatever machine you go on. Yeah. You know? 
And it's uh, even the shell uses Amiga DOS commands, which is quite cool. You yeah. know, it's Amiga DOS commands in the shell. But then they're going to they're bringing out a Raspberry Pi um, port of it as well, so you can have it on you know actual hardware. You can run, yeah. run it natively that you can then access. Oh, so you can run it within the hardware. Yeah, you can run it directly as well. Because I thought there was an idea that they would have cloud processing, mm -hmm. which would yeah. be behind the kind of web one, that you would, you know, have a video file to render, yeah. and then this massive supercomputer would yeah. just do all the work for you. So, you, you can know. do that, yeah. You can host it and access your stuff anywhere, pretty much. Yeah. So you can host it on a Raspberry Pi or like this massive server, you know, and yeah. use them both at the same time. So I, I've been playing around with it, and it's pretty cool. But yeah, David, um, David Pleasance is now their um, Director of International Marketing. Okay. And Colin Pradfoot is uh, the CFO, uh, finance guy. So, you know, I think with these guys on board, it's it's definitely got a lot of interest from the old Amiga community. Well, I've seen a lot of old Amiga versions and distributions of operating systems or s similar mm -hmm. Amiga stuff, and they've always had the techie guys behind it, but they've yeah. never had the, the marketing or the promotion. Yeah. And it, guys like David... He's just not, uh, you know, he hasn't come from a computer background. He's come from a sales background. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's good at. And this is a kind of a driving force that I think may push Friend in another direction, more successful. Yeah, well, it gives him credibility, uh, I think, doesn't it? Definitely, definitely. And I think, you know, David was a guy that came up with, like, the Batman pack on the Amiga, didn't he? And the yeah, he's a pack. genius at marketing. And, you know, he's kind of really going to push forward this project. Yeah, so if you want to find out more about Friend and how you can get an invite to the beta, uh, we'll pop all the links in the show notes. Now, uh, did you ever use an Amstrad CPC 464 back in yes, the day? Yes, my first computer <laughs> was an Amstrad. And uh, green screen with a big... Five and a half inch floppy. Oh, so was, uh, my friend had one, and we used to play um, yeah Ghostbusters on it. And he had a green screen monitor. Yeah. Rampage and Missile Command <laughs> were the ones. And I remember the sound wasn't ever great at it, but it would do, it would actually speak. You know, Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. It was stuff. kind of a bit uh, PC speaker. <laughs> so uh, yeah, basically, there's a new version of um, an emulator. For Windows, I think it's actually the first release they've done in about two years. Everyone thought this project was dead. Okay. But now they've surprised everyone come out with an update to it. So it's called uh, WinApe. WinApe. Yeah. WinApe <laughs> nice. 2.0 Beta 2 has nice. now come out. So uh, if you were uh, an Amstrad guy back in the old days and you want to... Yeah, I think, you know, I'd totally forgotten about the old Amstrad. Mm -hmm. And I think this kind of brings it back. But I'll probably need to do it on a, on a big fat machine just to get the feel, <laughs> just to get in that vibe. The old Alan Sugar should get behind this, shouldn't he? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think he sold Amstrad off to... Um, Sky Television. Yeah, the set-top boxes. Yeah, so, so you know, this Amiga plan of getting the set-top boxes never worked out. But mm. if you look at the bottom of all the Sky boxes, still they say Amstrad on the back. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the legacy continues. Exactly, yeah. Now, this is quite interesting. It's uh, not very often that we hear about an ST game getting ported to the Amiga. Mm. As, uh, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, generally it was just straight ports, wasn't it, back yeah. in the old days, but... I, you know, I, I did a video on this on my YouTube channel uh, recently. Um, I acquired an Atari ST. Yeah, da, da, da. Before Christmas, you know, being a hardcore Amiga guy before that, it were, it's actually, I, I think it is a pretty decent platform, but obviously it was never quite as powerful as the Amiga. Yeah, I want to go on Cubase on that. It looks really yeah, good. That's what it was a platform that Cubase started at. One of the reasons that I was watching a video on uh, Bose, you know, the speaker manufacturer yeah. of Bose. They've got a video, kind of, they've been doing these little documentaries with music producers, like little, like, kind of overviews of them, sort of studies. Okay. And they did a five-minute video with Fatboy Slim. And in the background, he's got an Atari ST set up with Cubase running, and he still uses it in his studio to this day. Nice, nice. So, uh, but anyway, the, since I've got a bit more into the ST, recent, ST scene recently, there are a few games that existed on the ST that never got ported to the Amiga. And one of them is a game called, now I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Karatika. Karatika. <laughs> yeah, it looks very nice. 
It's a it's a karate. It kind of reminds me a bit of a Ik Plus, you know, international karate. Yeah, but then it looks like the kind of a uh, the characters look more Pints of Persia style with the shading. Yeah, well, it, actually, you say that it was designed by a uh, Georgian uh, Jordan Merchant Birchner. Okay, the the Prince of Persia guy. Yeah, he was a guy that was yeah. uh, did Prince of Persia. Um, Jordan Merchner is his name. I think it was called rotoscoping. Yeah, it's when the, they, uh, they got real actors, didn't they? Yeah. And they would kind of trace the outline of them. Yeah. So I remember, do you remember Bad Influence used to be on TV? The, yeah, the yeah, kids yeah. Show. With Andy Crane and Violet well, uh, Berlin. You can watch yeah. all of them on YouTube now. Oh, every, yeah. Every episode yeah. is on YouTube, so I've, I've been watching a few of them recently. And there was, funnily enough, about two weeks ago, I watched an episode where they're talking about rotoscoping. Yeah. And the, the show, I think they were making Flashback the game. Okay, so yeah, Flashback there. was another one. Yeah, yeah. the show in the process of doing it. Oh, wow. So that's, I guess, how this game was made as well. Early, early motion capture then. Yeah, well, it was yeah. just basically, it was just tracing the outline of the characters, you know, so probably in Deep Eight or something. But <laughs> it said this game was originally out on the Apple II, uh, the Amstrad CPC, Atari 8-bit, 7800, Atari ST, C64, DOS, Famicom, Spectrum, MSX, <laughs> Game Boy. Everything but Amiga. Yeah, and uh, the ST version was the best graphically, until now. <laughs> uh, well, so, so they've done some upgrades for this Yeah, well, they've basically made the graphics a lot nicer and a bit more high-res on the Amiga. Ah, so the top one's the Amiga picture. and Yeah, I see. They've kind of curved the edges and mm-hmm. uh, anti-aliasing. And well, I think stuff, it's AGA no. only as well. So, ah, uh, okay. Yeah, it actually looks really nice. So um, you can get this game. Uh, it's, it's free, actually, as well. So you can get the, uh, the WHD load or the ADF. We'll ah, put a few links if nice. you want to get it. Karatika. And this is by uh, Airlock, who's the guy who's been doing the Amiga CD32 releases. So he's been doing unofficial ports. Yeah. yeah. And some of them are amazing as well, aren't they? You know, oh. they're kind of... When he started that project, I thought oh, it was just kind of cool to get some kind of, you know some bundles of games and collections and that kind of stuff, but he's gone all out on them. He's putting, like, animated intros that were never well, there. Well, he's re- remapping the controls as well. So some of them have, like, you know, uh, reconfigured buttons. Mm-hmm. He's a, like, Super Street Fighter, I think. There's a, a, a better version of that where they've actually cleaned up all the backgrounds and yeah. they've, uh, you know, made it look less pixely. <laughs> well, you know, we were saying last week in our controller discussion that when you're using a D-pad, pressing up to jump... Yeah, you know, if, if you can reconfigure those, that, yeah. yeah so so uh, he's a talented guy, and it's good to see that even getting a new Amiga game is exciting all the time, but having one that we've never had on the platform before, yeah, that definitely. everyone else did. Uh, and here you go, speaking of new games as well, there's a new uh, shmup. A shmup, <laughs> yes, uh, a shoot 'em up if you don't remember <laughs> what shmup means. I think it's a bit more American than I've heard it, shmup. Shmup, yeah. Um, but it's a new one for the Mega Drive, and this is called Fatal Smarties. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the graphics on this, I'm looking at it now. Popeye mix with Rayman. Yeah, <laughs> it's like really yeah. weird. <laughs> well, apparently this came out of a, um, it was a, a coding like kind of demo convention. Okay. So they made this in 48 hours, just sat down, this was kind of, it's a homebrew game. Yeah. Um, but it's two player only as well. Oh, nice. Which is a bit of a novel kind of spin on things as well. A lot of old shoot 'em up games are always a lot more fun with two players, but it was very rare that you'd find one. Yeah. That supported it, but this actually needs it. So, but you control the same character. <laughs> so it says here: one person controls the mover of the copter, and the other controls the direction of the fire. Oh, so it's like a multiplayer go. together. Yeah, you work co-op yeah. game. Pretty co-op much, game. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and again, you can get the source code for this as well, which is kind of called the release that. Uh, you can download it. You can play it on an original system if you've got an EverDrive or whatever. So this was done at like one party then. Yeah. Or just apparently like, it was made in forty-eight hours from the Global Game Jam convention. That's cool. That's yeah. really cool that they're doing game jams because mm. uh, 
One thing we've had in the Amiga scene for a long time is the demo scene, yeah. which is... They still go on now. Well, yeah. I, last year I was watching uh, Revision. If you don't know what the mm-hmm. demo scene is, it's kind of art and graphics created to draw in code and uh, basically impress people what's the most we can fit in 40k. Or, yeah. You know... Uh, they have categories like that, don't they? 40k section, like yeah, intro yeah. section. And uh, they do a festival called Revision which is a, a giant party, mm-hmm. and uh, they have that every year. And if you look on YouTube, you can see all the little sections. So there's, a, you know, an Amiga revision section, and you have all the entries that year. There'll be a Mac, a PC. And it's it's really interesting having these kind of events where people go physically, yeah. create something at the event, and then come out with, after a weekend, you know, products. <laughs> L- looking at the sunlight like, what? Yeah, maybe we should get all the Amiga guys in one building, and then come out with a load of software at the end. But I always remember, I used to read disc mags and that when I was a teenager. Yeah. And I'd always read about these kind of big shows that happened. There was a lot of them in England back then as well. Yeah, they were it, called copy parties before. Yeah. And then they, they turned into parties, demo really. parties later. And they'd always, they'd always be held in like, you know, middle of the Pennines in Yorkshire or, or whatever. Rotherham or, Town Hall. <laughs> yeah, it was always yeah. something like that, wasn't it? And or kind of in Norway and Germany and you know yeah, Eastern Europe yeah. it was very big as well. I'd always read the show reports to do after it. It'd always be like you know, so we got in the car at six a.m. and we found the off license and we're twatting. Yeah, yeah. Them. You'd even get demos of like people's journeys and photos of their trips. They put them in that. the demos and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it was always interesting to read them. But I always, always remember thinking at the time, or I was too young to attend them. Yeah. But I always thought it must have been so cool to These go. These guys kind are of so party. cool. Yeah. yeah. I remember seeing photos of all the um, demo competition guys sleeping underneath their tables mm. with their monitors and computers on the top and I was like oh my god and if that desk gave way and he had a big monitor on top CRT back then <laughs> crushed by a 4000 <laughs> but it'd always be like you know just lads there a massive room yeah. with about 500 Amiga 500s in there everyone is coding away and they get a deadline you get like 48 hours make your best shit yeah yeah suddenly like we're going to show them on this big projector and then everyone views it and yeah. has to judge it and they're know? still going on now that it's cool that these parties still exist and dude we should so go to one. Oh, I would love to go to yeah. Revision like Revision they had I think Bass Hunter mm-hmm. or at one point he was doing songs <laughs> um, no live music performances and stuff like that Maybe a future episode from uh, from a copy... Uh, <coughs> demo party. <laughs> demo party, yeah. <laughs> right, guys. Well, listen, thank you so much for listening to episode six of the Retro Hour. We'll be back next Friday. Of course, you can get it every week from iTunes, the website, theretrohour.com, YouTube, and your favourite podcast client, no doubt, as well. I think we're starting to get most yeah, of Yeah, um, we're on Pocket Cast as well. I'm using that. Recommend yeah. that. Absolutely. Now, we're going to hand you over to uh, a fascinating interview with... I think it's better to call this guy legend absolute legend one of the top people in the games industry mm-hmm. making genres yeah you know absolutely and this is Mike Daly you're listening to the Retro Hour podcast episode number six and this week's guest then the mind behind games such as Lemmings Grand Theft Auto. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show Mr. Mike Daly. And we'll start right at the beginning then, Mike. Uh, what was your first ever home computer then? It was a ZX81 that I got. It was actually a friend's one that um, I bought from him um, when I was about 13. Okay. Um, and then from there, I went on to a ZX Spectrum. And then from there, I went on to my Commodore Plus 4. Right. So why did you get the Plus 4 then? What made you go for that? Uh, the, the Spectrum wasn't mine. It was uh, my... My mother's office had um, had gotten one and were getting me to write them a database. Um, and then when that went into the office, I didn't have a computer, so I was 
to get another one. Um, and that one was on sale right for that one. I think that's why uh, most kids around that time got them, I think, because they were quite cheap for a bit, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> trying to get yeah. rid of them, weren't they? And I know the Plus 4 has obviously got a pretty bad rep now, but what did you think of it at the time? It was really good for me at the time. The, um, the built-in monitor uh, was superb for kind of learning the assembler and stuff. Uh, let you hack games pretty easily. The basic was really good. So I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I missed, I missed having uh, sprites and the audio and stuff, but um, in terms of just getting up and running and, and figuring things out, it was really good. Well, how did you first get started with programming then? Uh, on the ZX81, there was, right at the start when I was my friends, we, I used to go around there and we basically used to play games and, and just try little programs. And then when he sold it and I got it, I kind of went at it a bit, a bit harder because I, I had a portable in my room, which was unusual at the time. And there was a magazine that came out that had a full listing of an assembly program, but it wasn't just the hex, which is what you normally used to get. It actually had the mnemonic listings as well. So I was actually able to see the program. Right. Um, so that was, yeah, about 13 or so I was about that time. How did that uh, lead you to ending up at DMA then? Um, well, once I got my plus four, um, there was a guy at school that says I should go to this computer club. You basically took everything along with you. So you, I had a huge bag with my computer in it, um, tape recorder, and my little monitor as well that I took along to this computer club. And that's where I met Dave Jones, Russell Kay, Steve Hammond, who were all kind of founding members of DMA. And they were all more interested in, in writing games and what everybody else at the club was, was doing, which was um, copying games. So was this a kind of, yeah, a copy club then? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Plenty of them around back then, wasn't there? Yeah, especially Spectrums and stuff. It was just <laughs> mad. Well, transitioning away from like the Spectrum and the Plus 4, obviously, you know, the, the next big platform for you guys was uh, obviously the Amiga, wasn't it? Well, I actually went through the C64 first. Mm -hmm. My first two commercial titles were on the 64. Um, and it was that that got me the money to let me buy an Amiga. The Amiga was just such a big leap compared to anything we'd, we'd been used to. Um, that 8-bit that to 16-bit um, technology jump was phenomenal. The ease of use we'd get really started to come forward in, in these, uh, these machines. Uh, the kind of GUI stuff and then the deluxe paint and everything was just so simple to, for anyone to start using. Yeah, kind of breaking out of that command line area. Yeah, yeah totally. I do remember that the first time I, I got my Amiga as well, actually using the mouse and stuff. It was like it, you had to retrain everything you knew about computers, really, didn't you? Yeah, it was just, it was just so different. But uh, it was quite intuitive, obviously. So it was really nice to, to use as a user. But when you started to try and program it, you had to throw all that away and try and figure out how to do that. And that was complicated. So I guess uh, the lead kind of pro um, main piece of software was Electronic Arts Deluxe Paint. Obviously, there are two, two different parts that I would use. It would have been the uh, R packages, which was D-Paint, uh, the D-Paint 3.1, I think I got free with it, and then an assembler of some kind. Uh, either I think it was Orgasm I used at that point before moving on to DevPack. Those were the things I kind of lived in, in on the Amiga. Now, obviously, for you guys, Lemmings was a huge breakthrough moment. Um, give, us a, give us a background on Lemmings, and where did the idea for that come from? Uh, so the, the history of Lemmings really forms around uh, when Dave was doing Blood Money. Um, which was a shoot him up and he had these walkers that were from Star Wars, kind of the, the two-legged ones running about. And Tony Smith, the, the artist that made them, had done a really nice job of these things. So Dave wanted to do a game pretty much dedicated to the walkers. Um, so he, ha he hired this guy to come in and do graphics for it. Um, and he started out by making these characters that you could shoot. 
he started making them all 16 by 16s. Um, and the walker was big, but it wasn't that big. Um, and I thought they should be smaller. So we got into this argument about how small they could be. Um, and I decided just to go on D-Paint and, and knock something up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where that kind of original animation came from. It was just from that, you know, a lunchtime or two, just playing with these sprites um, and seeing what I could, could make, trying to make them as small as possible. After that, I showed it to everybody. And because I put in all these different death sequences, they were all kind of laughing and them all just queuing up to die and just <laughs> thought there was a game in it. Um, was that the game Walker that came out for the Amiga then? That yes, eventually. It, it took a long time. That was a really good game as well. I like the um, kind yeah. of different time periods that you're in. And... Yeah, and it finally had small characters. You know, when you obviously when Lem- the project, the Lemmings project was um, going on, and then the game came out. Did you have any idea how big it was going to be? Nah, you it, get asked that a lot, and it, it's. I mean, any game you do, try and make it as enjoyable for yourself as possible, and so it's fun. Mm-hmm. But you have no idea how anybody else is going to take it. Uh, some of the other games I've worked on have been fun, and nobody else has really picked up on them. So obviously, Lemmings GTA, they, they, we had the same kind of thing. Make it so we enjoy doing it, and then other people pick it. So you've never any idea until reviewers get their hands on it, gamers get their hands on it, and you start to get the feedback. I always uh, kind of saw Lemmings as a game that you could kill things, but uh, in front of your mum, she would approve. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously Lemmings got packed in with the Amiga, didn't it? I remember it was in the uh, the Cartoon Classics bundle like that. I remember that's getting right. that on Christmas Day. That must have been quite a big thing for you guys, was it? Yeah, I think that's pretty much what drove the um, the expansion of DMA. Because there was uh, quite a bit of revenue coming in from it. I can't remember how much he got from it. It wasn't a lot, but there was an awful lot of Amigas being sold. So kind of compensated. Um, and that, that spawned the growth of DMA in the early days. Yeah. From you know, just a few folk into, I think we're 20, 30, 40 folk at that point. Because I remember Lemmings 2 coming out, and that was a really big thing because they you know, defined the skills of each Lemming. How much involved with Lemmings 2 were you? I always thought there was too many skills, I have to say. Um I think the Lemming stuff was, Lemmings 1, I think, got it absolutely right in terms of the, the kind of skill set. I think Lemmings 2 felt they had to put skills in just to have an expansion. The tech in Lemmings 2 was much better, uh, meant it could go into consoles much more easily. The Lemmings 1 um, was just written for an Amiga with no, no thought of memory involved at all. Um, but the Lemmings 2 stuff, we did sit down and think about how to get the tech so it would go on to SNES, Mega Drives, all that kind of stuff. But the actual skills was really just Dave and Gary and a few others just sitting down and, and trying to come up with things that you could put in the game. But I don't. I think there was only one or two extras that I would have put in. I quite like the Archer, uh, the filler and growers and stuff. Um, and even the balloon guy was quite good. But most of the other ones, you know, rollers and things were just put in because they needed more skills. So I think they went a bit over top on it. I do understand what you mean there, though, because the first Lemmings actually got that on. Do you remember the Commodore CDTV? Yeah. Yeah, and trying to play it with the the, the infrared controller, you just couldn't get the cursor to where it needed to be, you know, to because it was it was quite a fast game. You had to do things really quickly a lot of the time, didn't you? But yeah, was yeah. it was that a challenge? Em, was it? You know, because obviously the game was designed for a mouse. Did you find that that was something that you ran up against trying to do the console ports? On the early ones, we didn't really. I think we more or less just tried to make you move the the, the cursor with the, the controllers, and that didn't really work. It was only when we started to do the Lemmings 2 on the SNES we actually gave a bit of thought to the control system. Um, and I think that one came out really well because you could kind of pause it with one of the buttons as you moved around and selected things, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of got over this kind of fast-paced nature of it. 
but it also gave you really quite accurate selection of things. So it was really only when we did the SNES version of, of Lemmings 2 that we really kind of got it right. Now, what was kind of the atmosphere like working for DMA and Psygnosis at the time then when, uh, obviously, when Lemmings was out and you guys were suddenly making it really big? What was what was it like working there? Uh, I mean, in the early days for the first Lemmings, it, it really was just a handful of us in a very small office. It felt like it had been since we started, um, which, you know, just a few friends played to make games. Um, once the money started rolling in and we moved to bigger offices and other folks started coming in, started to feel like a kind of proper developer and bit more grown up with it um so it was a bit of a shift but still pretty relaxed attitude to things um there was money coming in so it wasn't a huge issue but it was good fun yeah obviously around that time um we had the transition from the 16-bit machines to like the, the super consoles as they were kind of tagged back then um did, did you find it was a big transition to then when the 3d era kind of came in so that would have been around the playstation and n64 time mm-hmm. yeah it was a shift as we started to try and think how you know how we were going to do all this stuff um, we were all kind of techy stuff, so we, we we quite enjoyed any kind of new tech. But we started out, I think the first 3D stuff was on the PC, really. And we started using other 3D, actual 3D engines that we bought in, but they didn't really do what we wanted. So we ended up writing our own, um, which, I mean, 3D engines are, are pretty good fun to write. Um, so we didn't have too much of an issue, but we did have to kind of learn um, a slightly different set of uh, skills, yeah. So um, one of your other best-known projects is Grand Theft Auto, and we're kind of in that period when the consoles came out. So yeah, how, how did that kind of come about? How did it develop? So let's see, it would have been around the start of 94. Um, I was kind of left on my own devices after finishing uh, Lemmings 2 on the SNES. Um, so I got to do basically just R&D on whatever I wanted. And I started out by wanting to do some kind of isometric game. I'd never done one before. Um, so I, th- I thought I'd sit and do, just figure out how isometric stuff worked and the best way of doing it. Once I had that up, I kind of realized, you know, for a modern PC at that time, simple isometric games are a bit bland and who cares. So I decided I wanted to try and get it to rotate a bit more freely. So it was a bit more 3D-ish, but still isometric. So I did this rotating 3D isometric game uh, engine and showed it to Dave and he gave it off to one of the teams to see if we can come up with a game for for this engine. And while they were doing that, I decided to to try and do some other just tech stuff. Turned out, though, that Syndicate Wars... Syndicate Wars? um, That was isometric, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a rotating isometric thing. Um, came out and it was the storyline was similar to the ones the guys were doing, and we just didn't like the gameplay at all. And it we just didn't think the isometric stuff really did anything for it, and it was a bit clunky and so on. Fortunately, I'd been starting on another uh, engine using the same framework. I had this kind of cube world where it was just a big 3D array of cubes, uh, which is what the isometric stuff was made out of, um, and I changed the viewport of it. Um, I've been seeing a, a game on the Sega Saturn called Clockwork Night. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Um, and it had a side-on perspective view, which I really liked. Um, I think it was probably the first one to really do that. I wondered if you could do that in the PC. Because it was just all these kind of flat blocks, I decided to try and do it using what we've kind of called the Doom Wall rendering, which is either a, a straight vertical or a straight horizontal, but with scaling lines so you get a bit of perspective in it. Uh, it means you don't have to do full polygons, which is fast, much fast, faster, um, and you can get a bit more control over it. I'd started out by trying to put 
basically a side-on scrolling platformer using this kind of thing and my cube world that I had uh, running. Um, and I showed some of the other guys. Um, they'd said they'd been trying to get a racing game past uh, Dave for years, um, but he wasn't interested in it. Um, and I suddenly realized that if I just put basically a wall in the distance, um, but then painted roads on this wall, then all of a sudden it changes from side on to top down. So I all of a sudden <laughs> had this kind of top down city thing wow. that um, I then showed Dave. He was kind of fascinated in the, the, the thought of being able to have a much more controlled view of a city that he could probably, you know, populate and actually make it a living city. Because that's always a problem. If you go into 3D, you've got very far distance or you call it and it looks a bit naff. Whereas this had a very tightly controlled viewport that you could, you know, imaginably fill the city and have a really busy city going. So um, I handed that over to Keith and the guys to actually try using this engine instead. And that obviously went a lot better than the first one. I think the main thing about GTA for me was the um, driving top-down experience and how smooth it was. That was, you know, the kind of appeal of it that you could travel at these incredible speeds and not um, smash into anything. You know? Yeah, I think that the, the driving stuff was, was the real moment for me when, when they finally got it all hooked up and then got some good car physics in and you could drive about and you get the nice perspective and the cars down. That was that was the real point when it started to feel, you know, this is this is going to be quite cool. Yeah, because it goes into the handling of cars then and different yeah. types. Yeah, they, they went through a couple of different car physics and then one of the other guys, Pat, he came in and, and basically just gave them a car physics to, to kind of use. He had a much better idea of doing it, Pat Car. Where did the idea come from to make it a game about stealing cars then as opposed to just driving them? I think most of the things in GTA was, were evolutions. You drive about and, and you just think, wouldn't it be cool if... Things like, wouldn't it be cool if I could just jump in the ambulance or jump in the police car and steal that and then drive that about instead? So things like the, the ambulance going to you know, to, to rescue people or whatever. And then, so you'd crash the car and then you'd jump in that and, and drive away with his ambulance or fire engine and all this kind of stuff. It was all just kind of an evolution of the game as it was written. Um, most of the game was like that. The Garanga stuff. and <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. The um, Colin Anderson, who's the music guy, and I were downtown. Um, and there was a chain of Harry Kushners uh, walking in front of us, which is the only time we've ever seen them. I've right. never seen them since either. And we just walked behind them as he recorded them. And it was just kind of led on to this big thing in the game of, you know, this that because GTA was more of an arcade game and you had this multiplier, it was just, you know, get them, run over them and, and get this multiplier going up. <laughs> it was great. That was everyone used to go, oh, is it football hooligans or is it, you know, there was a big debate over who they were. So it's great to hear where that actually came from. <laughs> Did you expect the controversy the game caused at the time then? Um, I think it was Max Clifford who was hired to do all the PR stuff. Um, he designed all the controversy. We kind of knew it was all coming and we kind of laughed when we heard the latest bit of controversy. I think when it appeared, it was in Parliament being debated. I think that was the, the high point of the controversy. We, we couldn't believe they were, they were doing it because they obviously had no idea about the game at all um, and yet they were trying to debate it. In, in Parliament, it was amazing. But that was all Max Clifford, really. He de- designed all that stuff. So it was all carefully orchestrated then, was it? This, uh, yeah. The, well, ah, interesting. Well, what do you think of the way the, the Grand Theft Auto franchise has gone on from then? Then, what do you, Have you played the latest games much? I think I played four just to kind of have a drive around and see what it was like. I haven't played five. I think they're, they're definitely more mass market. Um, they're not, I don't think they're as fun as the other games. 
I'm more into the arcadey style games, and I think they they definitely they they will appear to a wider audience than any kind of game that I would have done. But they're not quite my cup of tea in terms of fun factors. Um, I'm very much I, I want a bit of instant gratification, and arcadey games give me that. Yeah, I remember when uh, GTA first came out. My friend Callum had the demo disc on a on a CD, and we'd just try and get as many points in the demo before it ran out as possible. That was it was just great fun. Um, but can I just ask about uh, a rumor that was going around for a long time? Was there any Amiga development or involvement with Grand Theft Auto? No, I, I seem to remember there was this lawsuit of this guy that sued Take Two about the Amiga thing. We had this interview of this guy that came through. I can't remember if it was the same guy that cycled through from Glasgow. Um, who thought we we thought he was mad, and he showed this um, something running on Amiga. And I just remember seeing a picture of something outside a, a courthouse or something, but we didn't actually look at the game or anything like that. It was just running there, and it was years before GTA came okay. about. GTA had nothing to do with the Amiga stuff. It's a difficult question, but um, what what do you think makes a good game then? Um, I don't think it's a difficult question at all. I think it's just to me, it's fun. Um, you've got to first and foremost, enjoy the actual experience. Um, there's an awful lot of games that are, you know, you get aim and, and get past a certain level before, you know, there's some kind of psychology thing going on. I, I don't go for that at all. I think if you've got something that's just outright fun, then you'll quite happily stay in the game and persevere through anything. Fun and humour, I think, are, are big things that um, aren't always there in games, particularly humour. I think are, are big things that are missing in games these days. What are you currently involved with? Are you um, currently playing any games or working on any? Um, no, I mean, I, I work for YoYo Games these days, which is, um, we make Game Maker, which is a tool that lets you make games. Most of my effort goes into basically trying to do a tool to let everybody else make games. And I'll play with little things myself uh, using the tool, but nothing that's really kind of come out of earth shattering, just little toys of things. Uh, but most of my efforts trying to make the program better for everybody else. Do you think it's made a bit easier these days, the fact that you've got engines like that to um, help people oh, out yeah. with before you had to do it all from yeah, scratch, yeah. I guess, in the early 3D days? Yeah, I mean, it's the the accessibility of um, tools like GameMaker just means that anybody, I mean, we've had eight-year-olds make games and then been able to sell them on the web. So you would never have been able to do that. You know, back in the day when we started, it, it, it was hard to make a game. Uh, machines were very limited and... Um, you had no way of getting out to your audience without a publisher. These days, machines are so powerful. You can get a, a tool that lets you put your vision in even roughly um, without you having to worry really about performance. And then you've got you know lots of social media stuff that you can get your game out there pretty easily. So I think it's much easier these days. We were chatting the other week actually on our show saying that it's kind of the edge of the bedroom program has kind of come back again now, hasn't it? Thanks to the oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it happened a while back, I think, from... By 2007, 2008, it was kind of the starting point with when you start getting the the Apple and the um, App Store. I think that was the real kind of renaissance of it, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just gotten more and more. Um, I think PC games will probably make a slight resurgence for that because the App Stores are so bloated now. Getting stuff onto Steam and social media is a bit easier for folk mm-hmm. than trying to make a free to play game, which is all the App Store stuff seems to be these days. And uh, in the kind of late 90s, we wouldn't have dreamed that it would be going back to bedroom developers. It would be no, massive groups. I think it's, um, I think it's a, a blessing, really. We're starting to get that variety back that we, we lost for so long. It's great to see. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. It's been fascinating talking to you. No bother. Hey, baby.